3: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. This is another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today is Ed Brotherton, formerly of We Are Change LA. Ed, good evening. Good evening, man. How you been? Hey, this is a little bit different than most. You know, I did this last year about the free dealing, like a free conversation regarding the terrorist events of September 11, 2001 and what we have experienced over the years. And last year, I didn't uh, plan on a three-hour conversation, but I did, and this happened in June. I actually thought it was around September, it was in June, but since we are just two days away from the 21st anniversary of 9-11, I figured that we can just talk about what led up to the events September 11th, 2001, and what we have learned over the years regarding our trek into this a terrible event on our nation's history. I figured what better way to talk about uh, how we got started than you Ed, You've been at this longer than I have uh, and you were involved with We Are Change LA and I dare say uh, what an experience that was because I know your story uh, behind it but many others do not and what led you to We Are Change LA and Why the subject of 9-11?
4: Well, um, what got me started was the fact that I was sitting in my office one day and I got an email of the, after they released the uh, Pentagon footage of the the object hitting the Pentagon. I call it object at the time because it was unidentifiable as as to what it was.
3: Mm.
4: It looked like a missile um, based on, you know, first glance and first, you know, cursory analysis, but uh, you know, as as I as we know that later on we determined that was not to be true. But uh, from there, I began to question, and it's like, well, what the hell was that? And then I began to look into other aspects of 9-11, Found a group. Uh, I think it was a meetup group actually, and we ended up. It was two of us. I'm uh, not sure. Three of us total, including me, that would meet at this little cafe in uh, in uh, Woodland Hills. And we would talk about 9/11 and what was what's what's going on and why was there you know why there so many questions surrounding it you know how did this happen et cetera et cetera and you know so it started off there and then we learned about another group in Santa Monica called the 9/11 Truth uh 9/11 uh, Truth LA and uh, they were meeting at the Uncovering Cafe in Santa Monica and it was uh. So we started going there since there was more people. So, oh, look, there's, there's just, we started off as just us three. Like, oh, we, we thought we were the only people in the world, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, and who, who were questioning 9-11. <laughs> and it was like, we didn't know there was others, you know. So, and then we found these others. And then we were like, oh, wow, okay, you're you're also uh, uh, questioning things too. So let's go check out your group, see what you're all about. So we ended up becoming part of that 9-11 Truth LA group. And then um, after a while, it became sort of um, oh, what's the word? it's Just it was constant talk, um, not a lot of action. Mm. I have always been from day one the type of guy who wants to see people thrown in prison and you know prosecuted for the, for whatever crimes they were involved with right. regarding nine eleven. And uh, so it, it wasn't there was a lot. Of, it was a very much of a. Um, Get together and talk about 9-11 sort of group, which is fine. And there were several people who were part of that group that went off and branched, branched off and joined and sorted their own. By this time, we uh by this time we are changed was formed, Luke Rudowski and his ambush journalism style. uh, that was becoming popular and he was becoming popular. And chapters started opening up around the country, and then uh there was a group in L.A. that was part of 9 Live Truth L.A. that decided to uh, try and engage in that sort of type of uh, act. You know, that sort of act. Uh, that sort of activism. So the group, the the, the group of uh, the group of those folks went to the Bill Maher show and started asking Bill Maher about Building Seven and how mm. it collapsed. And this is over a few several years, by the way. It's like probably over a three or four year period. And, um, and this is the famous footage uh, that hit the news where Bill Maher was uh, being shot down by some truth activists in the auditorium ah. during his live broadcast. And turned out a lot of those guys were uh, people who I knew and were part of the Nine of Truth L.A., but they kind of separated themselves in order to do more activism like this, like the, what they're doing.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, they, they got a whole bunch of uh, press and they got a lot of notoriety, they were on scene, you know. CNN did a story on it. You know, it was all over the place. So people started reaching out, going, "Hey, who are these guys?" And we want to, we want to know more about them. So they ended up forming uh, a Weird Change chapter. So they realized, they, credibly for the it. So they formed Weird Change Los Angeles, and uh, uh, Adam Ruff was one of those uh, co-founders in the beginning, and along with um, uh, along with the, um uh, 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 Kurtzman and uh and, and uh, those three are main, the main ones and then I ended up joining up later a little bit later uh, because I liked what they were doing as far as their getting, getting out there and actually being active to some degree so I was part of We Are Change LA for a very long time almost uh, 10 years and uh, mm-hmm. almost 15 years actually and and um, and then Occupy LA hit. So we, we did a lot of stuff. We were doing, we had those, uh, we were at the anti war marches. We took up the entire march. Uh, we had about 700 members on our meetup group. About 60 uh, during high times was actually showing up at the meetings. Uh, we had 30 that was really strongly active. So it was a very powerful group. It was a very, very robust, and very solid group. Very. Right. And, um, and just a lot of, of go getters and, and we were, you know, of course, pounding all the, the basic 9-11 truth, you know, talking points and, you know, this, that, and the other we had all the flyers. We had the banners. We had all that stuff. We were, on, doing, we were on the street, you know, bullhorning. We were, we, we, we had this thing called the bird to honk ratio where in the beginning we would get a whole bunch of uh, people flipping us off, giving us the bird versus the number of honks we would get in support. And then over time, that changed where we got a lot more honks versus people flipping us off, giving us the bird. Right. So we had the—that's how we measured our success. So we called the, the, the honk to bird ratio.
2: Hmm.
4: And uh, so that was uh, so sort we—that of, was just heavily involved in that for many years. And eventually, I ended up uh, becoming one of the steering committee members. And over time, many of the members moved away, and uh, at uh, things things happened and. I eventually ended up becoming uh, head of We Are Change in Los Angeles and took over the group, ran it for about five years. And about that time, uh, I was trying to figure out how to get more involved in actual prosecutions and actual mm-hmm. getting evidence together and things of that nature and actually doing real solid activism uh, as in going after the uh, the politicians and trying to get some sort of real investigation going. And I was getting a lot of support with that, but it was still kind of like you get a lot of volunteers and you kind of get wishy-washy and they float in and out. And it's just yeah. hard to kind of corral them and get them to actually really do something that's consistent and and has a solid solid goal in mind.
3: By, by the I way, just to, just, to, just to ask on a follow-up to that, uh, what crime sure? were you at? trying to um, uh, charge uh, politicians with or somebody in the intelligence community? What what crime do you think was committed at this point?
4: Well, with the intelligence community, I wasn't really focused on that so much. It was more right. of the, uh, just the 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 lack of investigation, the lack of okay. the malfeasance, the misfeasance, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the new information that was discovered with respect to nanothermite technology being used in the buildings and right. And the nanothermite thermite report that came out, and and um, and I actually went to the courthouse and got that put onto a court record. Hmm. I think I was the first one to do it, actually. You um, were, yes, you were. Yeah. So, uh, but I invoked the misprision of felony provision and misprision of treason provision, which uh, got me access to the court, even without a case case number. Uh, Judge Leland Harris took the information, and uh, but at that point, it was up to him as to what he wants to do with it. I just did my duty and. You know, put it on the record. So uh, at some point, um, you know, so we're very active and uh, a lot was going on. And I was trying to get the group to uh, engage in more, more, le- less activism because we grew the group. We grew the group to about as much as we can grow it. Uh, we had 700 plus members on the meetup. So it was really about activating those and utilizing those 700 members. And trying to get to get harness that sort of uh, those numbers and figure out how to get them to do something without actually have to show up at meetings or uh, or do something on their own or as a group uh, without having to show up at meetings, et cetera. So that was kind of my goal: is trying to figure out ways to do that. And uh, about during this time, I started. I've always had an interest in monetary history and monetary law, so I became somewhat of a you know. A, subject matter expert on on that, and uh, the power of the sword aspect or power of the purse aspect of political philosophy and then I, I uh, found a gentleman who, um, who was focused on the power of the sword aspect of political philosophy and he taught me about that. And as a result, I uh, became very familiar with the militia provisions of the Constitution on top of the monetary provisions. And from there, I started to realize that one of the things we needed to do was revitalize state constitutional militias in order to have the rights, powers, privileges, and immunities to ex- effectuate our political will with respect to 9-11 and a new investigation. So that became my new focus. And I proposed this to the group. I explained to them how it works and what it's all about and the history. And they all loved the idea and was very much behind it. Um, and then Occupy LA, LA hit, and during Occupy LA, uh, we went down there and made our presence known. Uh, we had our we had a booth set up there, and I was doing a uh, little little lectures and you know little educational things I was doing down there. And and uh, during that time, some things went down, and the leadership ended up. Oh uh, well, yeah, this is before I took it over, by the way. Mm-hmm. The leadership uh, was no longer there, I guess you could say. I took it over because I was the last year committee member and that's when I proceeded to run the organization.
3: Was that because and, they either they just had disinterests anymore? Was there um...
4: No, no, I, I can't discuss it. It's just it's something that's in the past. So I'm not gonna discuss. Oh, okay. it, All right. yeah, yeah. Right. Um yeah, out of respect for the people involved. You know? mm-hmm. So um yeah, so that I basically was just running the show there, and, and then and then I uh, Nelson who Nelson Martin as you know who mm-hmm. uh, moved back to Tulare, he's been living out there for quite some time and hasn't been really involved and he came back to L.A. and we started hanging out and he started he started to do a lot of research in 9/11 and found all kinds of uh, things that we were doing wrong basically and points that we were taking that weren't quite correct and things have been rebutted and. Uh, not just rebutted by like popular mechanics or things like that, but actually legitimately, hey, we're wrong on this issue, we're wrong on this issue. Here's why. look at this, look at this. So I spent about a year with them or so just uh, you know helping them with the research and and uh, you know kind of kind of taking a different approach to the uh, to acquiring knowledge about nine eleven that most people weren't getting. Because they kind of stopped, I guess their research, or their, they just go to 9-11 blogger and look up the latest, uh, the latest news, or they list Alex Jones or the latest conspiracy theory, you know, that's put out there, and and you know, ever every, so everybody had the same sort of. It's like, oh yeah, it's like, no plane hit the Pentagon, you know, it was a missile. Uh, no, no plane crashed at Shanksville. Um, you had the, of course, I never believed in holograms and that nonsense. Uh, so there was a lot of yeah. walls. There was a lot of Yeah, exactly. So government did it. Bush did it. Blah, blah blah. Well, Nelson showed me a picture of the Pentagon hole, of the actual hole, not the fourteen foot hole mm. that loose change told us about. And uh, I realized that. Oh wait, that looks like a hole an airplane. You know, an mm. airplane to fit into right.
3: Um,
4: and then I started doing more digging. I found out. Oh, we're wrong on the Pentagon. So I took the uh. And I realized, too, we have some Israeli involvement uh, with respect to the dancing Israelis and the urban moving systems uh, company and all the, the, you know, uh, Dominic Souter and all those guys and trying to figure out and pinpoint all that
3: information. And Can I just follow up on that? When when you were showing that picture about the Pentagon, um, did you know right away? Did you believe it or did you hold on to? Like, well, this could have been made by something else. Or did you really just have like an overnight revelation of sorts and say, hey, I was it was. In,
4: it was an instant revelation.
3: Oh, I had it? no
4: problem. I had no problem changing my mind.
3: Okay.
4: Um, it's, to me, it's kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's stupid not to. Because I don't want to waste my time holding on to bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a time suck. It's, it'll take your life away. if You hold on to things that just simply aren't true. So I have no interest in doing that. I have a life. I have, uh, you know, I want to move on and I don't want to uh, uh, be engaged in nonsensical theory. So when I saw the, four, the 14-foot hole with the water spray that we see on the second floor, mm-hmm. everyone thinks that's the entry hole, but, but it's covered up by the by the spray of the fire hose of the, the water, the fire department spraying is the bottom floor, which is a much bigger hole, and that's what I saw, and realized that oh, we weren't told the whole truth here. So, I was able to change my mind immediately.
3: So, you know, from and and from there, basically, this incident became the divisive factor in your group, as you told me. Over it years. did.
4: It did. I called up a guy named Bernie Suarez, um, who was part of our group, very active member, um, and I, I one thing I noticed about the group is just every Sunday we or every uh, every Sunday, yeah, was it the first Sunday of the month? I can't remember. It was, we had a scheduled meeting. We had anyway. We show up at our meeting, and it became a it just became like a conspiracy theory support group instead of a real activist group is like everybody was coming in with the latest Alex Jones talking point. And, and it just wasn't, it wasn't moving anywhere. No, no new information was being revealed except for what I was learning. And then I was trying to figure out how to introduce it to the group and especially the Israeli involvement. I called up Bernie and I said, look, I think we need to talk about this Israeli involvement. He poo pooed the idea. Thinking it was going to be divisive. I don't care. Um, and then I also brought up the fact that we need to talk about the Pentagon because uh, I've seen information now that makes me believe if we weren't told uh, that we're pushing a false narrative. And so I, Nelson showed up at the meeting. I was there at the particular meeting. We went to raise the issue and immediately was like, it was like, it was like a bunch of banshees just came out of the woodwork and just went uh, batshit crazy. Mm. Um, so we just, it just immediately, I just realized, wow these people are, are not, uh, they're not able to step outside of confirmation bias and they have a real serious problem. And, uh, and I didn't want to be part of that anymore. So it was, it became a big, there became a lot of drama in the group, uh, I kicked Bernie out. Uh, Nelson, there's a lot of emails going back and forth. And uh, Bernie ended up starting his own We Are Change LA group, calling it the official We Are Change Los Angeles. Hmm. uh, And just kind of pulling a bunch of shenanigans. It fell apart, of course, and didn't last. So the whole We Are Change LA uh, organization at that point just died uh, a horrible death at that point. It, It was like literally like 700 members. You know, activist group, great work, blah blah blah. I just, it just, I brought the Pentagon, and it was just destroyed instantly. Not even, not even a, it was like within a blink. That's how fast it was destroyed. Just for bringing up a, a, a alternative, just for bringing up some an issue that we need, we have a responsibility to address.
3: You know, it's funny it's like because. Suarez was basically more worried about the Israeli issue and he's talking yes. about the intelligence, foreign intelligence ring that were operating right. inside the United States even though that's a very taboo subject and that's for its own right uh, for a different reason but that wasn't what was the divisive issue the divisive issue happened to be the Pentagon which yep. current, which currently fast forward I don't know what year What year was that by the way no, when that this
4: happened. was 2000 and uh, 2000 and I want to say 2015, around
3: there. Okay, so seven years later, we uh, that issue of the Pentagon is still as divisive and acidic in conversation as it was then. Um, and I, I I don't know why. I think I, think I the, the, the reason why is because we don't have like a clear shot of a plane actually crashing into the Pentagon. I take it and back.
4: By- it, was probably two, it was probably 2010.
3: 2010. Oh, so 12 yeah, years.
4: it's, 12 it's years. all it's all like a blend. It's it's right. all blurry now. Right. Yeah, I got five years it's all all jacked up there.
3: No, yeah, um, I think
4: it's 2010.
3: And j- and just as the and that's even like that just goes to show you even as far if further back, still just as a divisive topic as today. Yeah. And it's basically because you had primary um, shooters like uh, Barbara Haniger and. And uh, later on, Christopher Bolin and and Rebecca Roth and citizen investigation team, loose change of producers, that's Jason Burbus, Dylan Avery, Corey Rowe, Davon Kleist, you know, the list goes on. It's almost endless. Uh, And they're all propagating this uh, issue that, oh, wait a minute, you know, we don't know what hit the Pentagon uh, because there's no clear video. On the other hand, you know, we have eyewitness testimony and then they have to go further back. They have to go backwards now because now they have to, to address that. And that issue is, well, you know, these people basically saw maybe a drone you know, or maybe their plants and maybe it was a missile. And then they have to go and prove that. I mean, but they don't. Right. I think the problem with the fringe elements of the truth movement uh, basically just. They don't get to those issues. They just keep going backward, backward. You can jump from point to point to point. They're all over the place. Um, and this became a huge, huge issue. And it became such a, uh, like you say, a divisive issue in the truth movement. It even alienated primary truthers, big names like David Chandler, Wayne Costi, Ken Jenkins, John Wyndham, um, you know, these, mm-hmm. these type of people, and basically shunned them because, you know, they show work that, yeah, hey, wait a minute, you know, we were wrong. A plane really did hit the Pentagon,
4: right? Um, and what and the thing is, and the whole thing is, what does that do to the whole narrative now? Sure. And now you got to create. A, now you got. Now the plane has to become a drone. You know, if it did hit the Pentagon, now it has to be a drone. It can't be a real plane. It can't be a. It can't be a hijacked aircraft right. because we can't have hijackers now. Because that was the whole thing. It's like once you introduce, it's one of the problems. Is that once you introduce real planes. With real hijackers, everything falls apart for the, for the movements, not the truth movement, because their entire existence is based on a fa- that false narrative.
3: And this is a really good point, by the way, I'm glad you raised it, um, because of the important issue of the essence of 9-11, which I, of course, I'm ad nauseum here, uh, the intelligence apparatus. And what do I mean by that? I'm talking about foreign and domestic. Foreign is Saudi Arabia and Israel. Domestic is the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, and the DIA. And they all had separate operations. And one of the we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but this issue of the Pentagon is so important because what we have is an actual anomaly involving the people perpetrating with the hijacking of that plane. And that right. starts with Khalid al Bidar and And Ed, in your years, and Ed, you've been uh, an activist for a long, long time, there's something that I wish I had gotten into in my first formula of years of studying September of 2001, I was basically reading books in the middle of the deserts in, in Nevada. Um, so I didn't have much in the way of real activism on, on the streets, uh, but it led me into a much more, I guess, uh, invigorating reading of many different areas and topics. Since I was very interested in the who, what, when, where, why, rather sure. than just the collapses of the towers, which I said, you know, I'm very, I can't speak on that because one, I'm terrible at math, and I failed at physics. You and me school. both. Yeah, me, you right. and me. <laughs> I, you know, uh, just to uh, just to inject a little bit. When I first started back in 2006, one of the very first forums. Uh talking about 9 in any capacity was uh JREF, the James Randi Educational Forum. Um, and uh, also there was John Gold's forum. Um, 9-11 was that blogger? No. Um Ah damn. He's he's I think he's the oldest now. This forum's the oldest. Anyway, at the JREF forum, uh, you know, you have people like Tony Zambati, um, all these like real scientists that, you know, God, I yeah. can't yeah, forget it. You know, uh, I'm starting at the really, really underneath the bottom. These guys are way at the top. So I said, all right, hardly anyone's talking about who these people are. Why'd they do this? If we're to just take it on faith value, all right, these hijackers, attackers, they hate our freedom. Sorry, I want to know why. And I've always been interested in the psychology and the motivations of people regarding crimes. Uh, big truth, sure. crime I studied psychology at this University of City College. So I, I, I started to delve into that area. And um, lo lo and behold, you know, uh, uh, 16 years later um, at this point, and boy, you know, I'm not finished yet and I'm just getting started. Um, When you were uh, We Are Changed and when that dissolved, did you basically uh, start now familiarizing yourself with this area of the intelligence apparatus and the motivations of these people?
4: Uh, yes, for the most part, I started to focus more on, uh, uh to focus on that, but not because you guys, Nelson and, and everybody, because, um, you know, I've, I've started to kind of almost phase myself out of the whole movement, uh, because there've been so many other people who, I, if for me, it felt like, oh, great. I gotta, I got now I gotta, you know, do some real serious digging into this other area that, you know, I, I, do I want to, do I want to invest that kind of time into it? And uh, so I decided that I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can, but still have a life. And uh, you guys have been an incredible asset with respect to being able to do that because you guys are the ones putting in all the work now. You guys, you guys are the really unsung heroes of the land of truth as far as I'm concerned because of that.
3: Well, I, Goodness, great. You know how to make a guy blush. <laughs> so, uh, No, really, look. Um, what I'm doing is nothing special, basically. And I've said this before ad nauseum, you know, um, I'm only trying to dispel the disinformation and the incomplete narratives purported by the media, right. which is basically just a an extension of the federal government. Um, so, in other words, we're uh, uh, participating in a war of two fronts. War. One is a war for information, which is a good war. And the other one is a, a time waster. It's a war of disinformation, yeah, battling yes. against disinformation. And it's a, it's a shame because a, a lot of resources went into that. And, You're um,
4: exactly right. And, that, and that's, a, that's a tragedy, too, because that's, and that's one thing I just absolutely can't stand, is that the disinformation is a major time suck. It's, it's, it sucks the time out of everybody's mm-hmm. lives. It sucks the time. And, and time is one of those resources that you can't get back. You know, you just spend 20 years going down a rabbit hole that never, never ends and that's 20 years gone.
3: Mm.
4: And that makes, it's just like, no, you can't, you can't be doing that. And I didn't want to do that. That's for sure. So that's why I can't adhere to these, uh, um, these outrageous theories, uh, and be stuck in some sort of confirmation bias because it's, it's not, it's not healthy.
3: No, it's not. And, you know, I fell into it really hard in the beginning, back in 2015, when I first met uh, you guys, you and Nelson on Facebook. And, you know, one thing I took away from that was that, you know, I ran into Richard Cox along the way, who was a co-host of this podcast. And, um, you know, I consider him just as invaluable as meeting you and Nelson. And um, thank goodness for you guys, because basically, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have went as far as I did with the podcast and with this study itself. I, I would have I think I would have quit quit many, you know, because I thought about it many times. Um, and one thing I learned was that I'm trying to reach an audience that is victimized by these uh, people. And mm-hmm. instead I was pushing them away. And I did this, you know, previously with when I my study with religion, I became a fanatic in my anti-theism. And I said, you know, I'm doing this wrong. And because I got caught up with people like, you know, Craig McKee and Barbara Honego online. And what I did was, was basically alienate, not them. I don't care about them, but their audience. That's the, the people I'm reaching. Because I don't want an echo chamber. You know, I want right. to, I want to try and make a difference in trying to get the public to, to, to realize, hey, wait a minute. You know, there are anomalies regarding 9-11. There are conspiracies um, regarding 9-11. Um, but the conspiracies that these people were purporting were false and demonstrably too some of them are just outrageous. you know living oh history it,
4: just, just right. lies
3: oh yeah Hunger. no uh you know <laughs> I, I i don't want to make it a bashing thing you know on on this uh recording but like yeah i'm i'm highly like a lot of people say well why do you do these critical videos i said look i'm not doing it because i'm you know uh, you know being anal to these people or, you know as, a, as an insult I really care about the information that's being shared. I, I, I wouldn't be doing this 16 years if I didn't. And it drives me really um, up the wall when I see, you know, people purporting, hey, wait a minute, you know, a drone it was switched, you know, planes are switched for drones. I said, all right, one, you know, now you're implicating the FAA and you're implicating public sectors and, you know, just regular people. Well, you know, um, you know, it's easy to do, but OK, it's it's easy to say. Can you prove it? Then you got a case. If you can't, right. then what's the case? What's the sense? I mean, it's fun right. to play make believe and you know fantasize about you know certain theories. And then at the same time, while you're doing this, you're also labeled as a shill or as a government operative. You know, somebody and because it's it's two, two, um it's a two way sword here. I mean, you're getting stuck with. Right. And then and then at the same time, it's like all this time is being wasted to try and persuade that person. Meanwhile, you know, the real you know, the people who committed malfeasance and maybe even worse are not being talked about. That's right. And that's the time wasted that you were talking about. That's right. Um, getting back to, um, you know, the Pentagon issue, because, you know, one thing I, w- I do want to talk about is the um, the issue of what led up to the events, September 11, 2001. You know, our studies start from, you know, the years afterwards, of course, and what we experienced over the years. You know, I too come from that background like you. Um, I didn't have the experience of being a street activist like you for many, many years. I um, I, I watched Loose Chains. I watched In Plain Sight by Dave Von Kleist. I did believe, you know, a missile hit the Pentagon. Not a plane or a drone, a missile. You know, I, I believed that for a short time. But I was, I was invested in it. What changed my mind was that I like to play devil's advocate and I like yeah. to see if I'm wrong. And so I looked at the people I wanted to know, you know what you know. The eyewitnesses were saying, and boy, none of them were saying a missile at the Pentagon. And I even played devil's advocate on that. So, all right, what is the possibilities that they could have gotten wrong? And and there was just too many. Like I could see if two or three people said it, but there was eighty six. I like, counted.
4: They... That's Tom Fraser. You know, at some point you right. just got to. You know, what's the most probable scenario? It's like it's just it becomes ridiculous after a while. Once you see the whole, it's like it's over. That was that was it for me. I was like, okay, everybody is basing a basing a missile theory off of a fourteen foot hole. The fourteen right. foot we- hole is no longer a fourteen foot hole. Right. Therefore, that theory is now gone.
3: Right. No, and you can't make sense of. No. Right. So there's no use to holding on to it. But it, no. you know, I wonder if it goes much deeper than that. You know, that people just refuse to believe that you know planes can be hijacked by. Uh, terrorists and whatnot but yes even though that we know that the planes were hijacked but that's not the real conspiracy right so back to the pentagon issue and khalid al-midar and wapahadbe that i bring up um this is where like the essence starts for 9-11 and i you know i'm not going to go too far back Ed, and lose everybody so we'll keep irrelevant um khalid al-midar goes
4: back to the uh, creation of the ottoman empire and i like that.
3: I, I could, <laughs> <laughs> but for sake of time, right, so sake of time, and for not to, you know, snooze the listener, and whatnot, let's, let's keep it relevant, and in, in, in short order, um, Khalid al bidar and Wafa al-Hazmi are al-Qaeda operatives for a very long time, in fact, um, Khalid al bidar lived in Yemen, um, and basically was married to a woman named Hoda Al-Hada, and you may be saying, well, who's that? Well, she was actually the daughter of an individual named Ahmed Al-Hada, who owned a house in Sana'a, Yemen, the capital of Yemen. And you're probably saying, well, what's the deal with him? Why are you bringing him up? Well, he was an associate of Osama bin Laden from his days in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion in 1979. As you can see, we can go back and back and back yeah. and you know, make a connection. So, I'll just, you know, I'll just, that's the furthest back as I'll go. But from there, you know, there was this house in Yemen that Khalid al-Midar sometimes visited, frequented because he was married to the daughter of the, this person. Now, the CIA and the NSA became aware of this house from uh, a wiretap by the NSA uh, regarding Osama bin Laden's satellite phone, which was bought by a person named Khalid al-Hawaz uh, through a storefront in Long Island, New York. And the FBI was actually investigating Khalid al fawaz for his links with Hamas. And this was totally separate. They had no idea about bin Laden, no idea about this house in Yemen. And they asked the NSA, hey, listen, um, this guy bought a phone. Could you possibly trace it? And the NSA um, tried. And they said, oh, yeah, we could trace this phone because it's, it's decrypted. It's not an encrypted phone. So there's no block. So the NSA could actually listen to the incoming and outgoing of this specific phone. The phone went to Virginia. And then a person in Virginia and I want to say it's um, and I always forget this guy's name. Ah, it's killing me. Anyway, he sends it to Afghanistan. To Abora. And what they realized was that this phone went to an individual named Osama bin Laden. And the light went on for the FBI New York headquarters. Hey, wait a minute. We heard this guy before. He's a financier that was involved with the with the uh, Soviet invasion of in Afghanistan. So they asked the CIA. Hey, what do you know about Osama Bin Laden? And they brought over files. I'm talking about lots of files that were bringing over by sure. Dali. And they're like, wow, what you know, what the hell do you know about this guy? Meanwhile, you know, bin Laden had, had went to the Sudan, but he traveled back to Afghanistan in '96. That's when things started really popping. And so while they're using his phone, the NSA could hear every call. And I think um, according to the public record, there's been over a hundred and like eleven calls. And a lot of these calls went to a house in Yemen. And bin Laden had been calling this number. And that means that this was a red flag number. That means this is important because if bin Laden's actually calling this number, that means he wants, you know, this is an important person. So sure. the NSA got wind of this, this phone number into this house in Yemen. And they started tapping that line. So between 1992 to 1998, the NSA were listening to the phone calls of this satellite phone. And from 1996 to 2001, that's a lot of metadata right there. The NSA, we're listening to the phone calls of that house in Yemen. And what I'm trying to get at, a picture for you, the listener, is that what we're trying to show is that just imagine what these people are talking about. Now, don't think of it like an American would. You know, talking about Tom Brady, talking about, you know, Kim Kardashian's rear, or talking about, you know, reality TV or whatnot. No, these are serious men. And they're Mm -hmm. talking about illegal operations, criminal, you know, bombing things or uh, conducting operations, building cells overseas, uh, transferring money from one mosque or from one Islamic center to another in, in the United States or abroad. You know, real information, like pertinent information. Okay. At the same time, while this is happening, the NSA were aware that Khalid Al-Midar lived in this house, and so they asked the CIA because the NSA doesn't do human intelligence. So they asked the CIA to assist and say, "Hey, listen, you know, we're conducting operations here, and we don't, we're not in charge of uh, any type of law. You know, we're just a signals intelligence agency. Um, you are the uh, the law outside the United States. You know, we want you to bring, you know, and to take pictures." And so the CIA said sure, you know. And then they opened up the Bin Laden issue Station, which was a virtual station created by David Cohen in 1996, and basically what it employed was the NSA, the FBI, the DI, all the in- domestic intelligence to conduct metadata and um, signals and human intelligence um, uh, information collecting, and share it with all within each other, like open sharing, closed source, which is you know, uh, private information and open source data, which is over uh, open to the public, Uh, you know, uh, Google searches. Just imagine how much data is coming through a wash, you know, God's sakes a wash. But this is the most important operation in the world at the time. There's nothing more important than this. Now, the conspiracy later on would be, you know, we didn't have the much manpower, you know, which could have been true at the same time, but at the same time, you know you're listening to the phone calls of these people, and you're taking data recordings, transcribing this daily. Mm. You know what's being said, you know what's going on, and that's for the public record. They know what's what's being said on these phones. Anyway, fast forward, Khalid Al Bidar and Wafa in December of 2000 Ed make a phone call that the NSA catch, and it's coming from um, a person in Yemen, and the person's name is Kala. Later on, we know that as uh, Talfiq bin atash a longtime uh, facilitator for al-Qaeda in Yemen. He has massive connections in Afghanistan, Yemen, and the Arabian Peninsula. So they say uh, to Khalid al midar who's answering the phone, say, hey, listen, we're having a, uh, a meeting in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, and we want you, Nawaf, and his brother, and he has a brother named Salim, our husband, to come and attend. So they all go and attend. The NSA hears about it. They they tell the CIA and the FBI, "Listen, go follow them and see what you could, you know, get back. I want you know, take pictures and whatnot." So the CIA does this, and they ask the Malaysian authorities to, you know, be on, take pictures of the uh, the people coming and going out of this meeting, and they do so. And it's held in a condominium owned by Yazid Sufat, who is a business. Um, Indonesian businessman with connections to a terrorist organization based out of Indonesia named Jemi Islamiyah, and they are affiliates of Al Qaeda. Um, and all the big wigs are there, you name it. The big, you know, it's a big party. This is the eye eyes wide shut of Al Qaeda right.
2: here,
3: right? Khalid yeah. Al Midar, Noah Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin Al sheib uh, Tawfiq bin Atah. I mean, the they, whole- could have,
4: they could have bombed that building and been, uh, yeah, and that's it, right? You know, that's it's it. Just, it's <laughs> all problem solved, you know.
3: <laughs> you know that's funny i never really thought of that and i said you know <laughs> that's, that's interesting they you missed
4: know, their opportunity right there
3: problem solved right that's it the game is over they destroyed and if that would have taken place you know none of 9-11 doesn't happen the bombing of the u.s Cole cold doesn't happen you know funny with yeah. your name there um but this comes at the, the after just you know a month and a half of the embassy bombings of 98 and so they go to this meeting and the entire intelligence committee is aware of this. The NSA, the FBI, CIA, right? So they all got to take pictures of this. You know, the CIA takes pictures of this. Right. The FBI is in New York. Now they don't bring any agents there, but they're aware of it. But now they're not getting much in the way of help from the CIA, the NSA. So in mm-hmm. other words, they have, they're building a chart in the New York office and they're putting like pictures that, you know, they obtained from the internet Bin Laden's face, stuck diamonds. Yeah, Mary, and taking you know. the strings
4: and connecting the ears. Yeah, you're right. Doing, <laughs> you know, doing their investigation.
3: The good, gu- the real shoe work, right? Yeah, you work. Meanwhile, the CIA, you know, they got you know the, the top of the line data and stuff like that. You know, the NSA too. So the meeting is over, and Khalid al minard and Waffle Hosby get on a plane. They go to Bangkok, and the CIA at the same time. Uh, through Alex Station. That's the Bin Laden issue station. It's codenamed Alex Station, named after Michael Shorrier, who is the deputy chief. Uh, I'm sorry, the chief of station. He's number one there from 1996 99. But he's actually replaced by Richard Blee in 1999, uh, chief of station. So they leave and they go to Bangkok and then they come to the United States. The CIA knows this because they actually take photographs. Of Khalid Albinar and Wafaa passports while they were in a hotel. There's a, you know, there's a couple of, of uh, competing stories about how they got this photograph. One is that um, they rented a hotel in the United Arab Emirates and when they left, the CIA broke in, took photographs, the passports, and sent it to Alex station. No matter how they got it, but the 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 main story that we can take away for for the public record is the CIA received this information. Right. And they saw this. And the cable that came in showed two high valued Al Qaeda targets who were involved with, at some level, the bombings into the US Embassy's '98, the US's coal bombing in Yemen, and their connections to Chechen Al Qaeda with Ibn Khattab, who's a leader, Chechen Muslim leader, who has links with bin Laden. There's a lot of links here over time. So, bin Laden, you know, um, CIA basically has this information, and one of the agents from the FBI who's on loan from New York, uh, Doug Miller, sees this cable and his jaw drops. And he basically runs over and tries to draft the cable right away. Hey, we we need to get headquarters on this. We need to monitor these guys right away. These are bad guys. He knows who they are. He has to get permission because it's CIA information. Can't just share it. Okay. He goes to the deputy uh, deputy chief of station number two man Tom Wilshire, and basically says Tom Wilshire tells Michelle and Casey, who's a case officer uh, working at Alex Station, who is the lead uh, manager of the operation in Yemenov, the house by Ahmed Al-Hatta. and she writes on the cable, please hold off for Wilshard. So that means cables never sent. January 15, 2000, guess who entered the United States? Khalid Abadar, Nwafa Husband. Full knowledge of the CIA, full knowledge of the NSA. FBI has no idea. Headquarters, talk about here in states. State right. Department, no idea. No idea. Um. Here comes the real conspiracy, right? Here's the lowdown that the, the fringe right. aspects come from. That's well, just one funny. area, man. That's yeah. one
4: Well, it's funny because you have. Uh, from 1992 all the way up to basically almost to the point of the September 11th attacks, it's like you got you have all the power of the United States government looking at these guys, monitoring them, and they spent all those years just looking at this and and watching and waiting and listening and conducting all the work necessary, and then they miss it. Mm they miss it. The, the, the big one, the, the bajinka, the big one. Right. Right. What they miss. And how do you, that's like, I thought it's, it's like, um, that's like spending, it's like spending 15 years building a huge skyscraper. And when you finally get it all done, you know, it's like, uh, you, 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 you can't put any tenants in it. You know, it's like right, right. It's like, what's the point? You know, it's like, it's it's, it's insane to me. It's a waste, That's insane to me. Yeah, it's a waste. Yeah, meanwhile, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, that that you're what you're studying there, you, the area that you're studying, and that information is not mainstream nine eleven truth material. It's it's uh, even so even it's, though it's
3: a, a, even though it's a conspiracy. Yeah,
4: yeah. But it's not mainstream nine eleven truth material. And it's in a lot of ways rejected by the 9 11 Truth Movement, and, and, and because they like their parallel theories of, of uh, missiles hitting the Pentagon and no hijackers, no planes. And it's just so this is where we're at in the 9 11 Truth Movement. Real good information that you're providing that will actually lead to real suspects and real investigations, and then everything else.
3: Right. Just, and you, yeah. This Now this is the, this is the lead problem, right? Because this is the divisive issue of the, that you spoke about before um, regarding the Pentagon and why we are trying to reach that audience and say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, the information that you received is wrong. Uh, but there is a conspiracy. Like right? they, they say, Oh, you're just spouting the official narrative. Right. But well, no, I mean, because what wow. I just said to you just now, Ed is not, uh, fully reported wow. in the 9-11 commission That's report. Right. Or the Joint That's right. House Inquiry. Now the Joint House basically, I will say there was one panelist and everybody knows by now because I always play the recordings of Carl Levin. And Carl Levin is actually interviewing the head, the DCI, the director of Central Intelligence, uh George Tennant. Now, uh, now that I've spoke about this, let me play a recording for you uh, regarding what the CIA knew, what they intentionally withheld, not withheld, intentionally withheld, which is a crime in itself now, um, to the FBI and the State Department. And, you know, let me, I'll just play a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on it. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, sure.
1: Meeting in the year 2002 in New York City. And this is a meeting of a CIA analyst and FBI officials from the New York Field Office, which was the office investigating the coal bombing and the FBI headquarters, including the FBI analyst on detail to the counter center at the CIA. The FBI agents on the coal bombing pressed the CIA at that meeting for information regarding Midhar and the Malaysia meeting but the CIA representative denied them that information. It's a very specific finding in the staff report that there was a refusal to share that information relative to Midhar in Malaysia, and as to why the CIA was tracking Midhar at a June 2001 meeting on a specific request of an FBI agent in New York. My question is, do you know why that CIA agent refused to tell the CIA agent what the FBI, oh. but the CIA? Let me start over. Do you know why the CIA agent refused to tell the FBI agent what the CIA agent knew when the FBI agent specifically said, "Why are you tracking Midhar?"
2: We have. Um, we're going to have a disagreement on the facts here. Um, and here are the facts as I understand them. There were three people who left New York to go to, to go to Washington to go to New York that day. It was an FBI analyst from FBI headquarters, an FBI analyst from our counterterrorism center, and our analyst. They went up to discuss the Cole investigation. The FBI analyst from FBI headquarters brought the surveillance photos with her. And at the end of the conversation, and I've now talked to two of the people involved, Senator, the FBI analyst from FBI headquarters handed the surveillance photos to the New York field office personnel. There was some discussion about them. Indeed, they were talking about different people. Midhar was not who they were talking about in this meeting. When I asked our person at this meeting as to whether he was was specifically asked about Midhar and Hazmi, he believe, he has no recollection of the subject ever being directed to him or ever coming up. So there's a there's a factual issue here, and I've only talked to two of the people involved. Well, let me read, you th- let involved.
1: me read you the staff report. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the Joint Inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding Al-Midar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travel to the United States, but he stated that he would not share information outside of the CIA unless he had authority to do so. That's what he told our staff. Do you disagree with that? Sir, I've talked to him as well. Do you disagree that he said that to our staff? Well, no, I don't disagree. He said it to your staff. I'm telling you what he told Did he he tell you something differently? Yes, sir. He gave me a different perspective. So he told you and he told our staff something differently. Well,
2: okay. (laughs) But I I think it's important, sir.
1: Yeah, but our time is limited, so let me just keep going. (laughs) That's the answer. He told you something differently from what he told our staff. Mr. Mueller, Director Mueller. At that June 11th meeting, did the FBI know that Midhar and Hazmi were at the January 2000 meeting of Al-Qaeda operatives in Malaysia? I don't believe they did. All right. So we still don't know in June of 2001 what the CIA has known for 15 months.
3: That's huge. All right. For the, I mean, that, that right there just proves that, for one, Tenet lied. Secondly... His own case officer is um, against tenant's narrative there. Right. Now, a little, little background on this for those who don't know. The case officer that he's talking about gave closed-door testimony to the joint inquiry. His name is Clark Shen. And thank you, Ray Lewiski, John Duffy. I can't take credit for that. Uh, their book, Watch Dogs in Barker's, God, it's a great book. Read it, please, anybody reading it uh, who has not read it. Um, he actually gave closed-door testimony. He said that the photographs that he was showing was the photographs I was talking about, the photographs from the Malaysia Summit meeting. And it showed the pictures of Khalid al and Wapahazmi and Khaled. And why this meeting is important, because the CIA knew they're in the country. They go to the FBI in Washington, D.C. We talk about July of 2001. Many, this is almost a total year, and some months later, about them coming into the country. Right. So shows the FBI these photographs and he says hey by the way do you know who these people are and of course they have no idea because right. nobody knows at this point like who are they alright who are they and basically Clark Shan tells him I can't tell you what the, what the hell are you showing us for well obviously there's a reason because the CIA right. wants to know it's called phishing they yeah, want to know what the FBI knows exactly right my god yeah. So, all right. <laughs> so, they did this twice, right? Now, Clark Shannon is getting orders from who? Because he's not doing it on his own. He's fired. He's doing this. He's getting orders from Tenet. The director, of the DCI, who's basically challenged Levin. I didn't tell him to say that. And that's where Levin said, all right. So, he told you and he told us something different. Well, he goes, yeah, he gave a different perspective. No, it wasn't a perspective. He told the truth. Right. <laughs> he told the right. truth. Which means... Why is Levin? Why is Tenet lying? Right. There's your conspiracy. There's Mm -hmm. a reason the CIA was protecting these guys. But if you don't believe in hijackers, none of this exists. That's right. is exactly right. This is the problem, man.
4: Yep. Meanwhile, do you know another building fell on 9 11?
3: Oh, my goodness. You know, right. And you wonder why my head looks like a tomato at this point. I mean, uh, it's a killer it, it's just
4: yeah, it's um it's this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's like you when you it, it, it's like the movement, the movement itself is dead as far as like you know they're not coming out with any new information about anything. Meanwhile, you, Nelson, and so many other people are putting out information that's just like constantly new stuff. i mean you you put up thousands of documents, nobody's reading them, uh, unfortunately. Um, you've got you know, Nelson's got tons and tons of hours and hours and hours of videos and films he's done, and it's just so much information there. You got you got the uh, uh, Midar and uh, al being coming through the checkpoint at Dulles on 9/11. We know right. it because coming through at the same time as Maria Sopper one of the victims on the at the on flight 77 mm. to Pentagon. And uh, yeah, where are where's the movement? Where is the National Truth Movement on this? Hmm. And I, I've said it before: the reason why they don't do this is because it's it's hard. It's hard. It's the, they don't want to put in the work that kind of work. They like to be spoon-fed to conspiracy theory, and then and then they run off and do activism and think that that's uh, they're doing an amazing job.
3: You know, and just so also to reiterate, that's just one conspiracy I'm talking about. Now, in the same story, there's another conspiracy. You have Saudi agents here in the United States that yeah. were actually helping them. Khalid Al-Qaeda, yeah. al- Ardovah, and this is going on for years. And later on, why is this important? Because the FBI and the State Department continue to cover up that aspect. And to, we're talking about the victims' families here. And I've interviewed you know, Ken Williams, who's uh, FBI agent out of Phoenix, who wrote the Phoenix memo warning about hey, there's an unusual high number of extremists uh, training at flight schools here in Scottsdale, Arizona, right. which is home to the most uh, flight training schools in the country. Um, and basically, he was told by the FBI not to help the victim families. Not another conspiracy there about it. So, right. you know, and we're just talking about one area of 9 11. You know, I think we talk. You know, then you have the Hamburg cell, which is even much more deeper because now we're talking about the Israeli angle.
4: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the FBI uh, covering up the fact that those uh, gentlemen were here helping the uh, helping the hijackers. Mm. Uh, You know, it's interesting because you get one element. You have the uh, one aspect. You have the FBI not being told something they should have known and needed to know. And then you have the FBI knowing something that, uh, and then they end up covering it up. So it's like, uh, even if they had the information that they would have gotten before, would they have dropped the ball and fumbled it? You know, it's like,
1: ah,
3: uh, right.
4: What, what the hell? You know, there's uh, so, it's so, it's so, oh, it's so screwed up.
3: Oh, it's a good point. That's, so that's, that's yes, yeah, I, oh, I, I never thought of that really to talk, to tell you the truth. Um, I think that's a very interesting aspect because, yes, here we have. You know, the real agents yeah. on the ground who are trying to make a difference. Now, we have a lot of whistleblowers from the FBI community, Colleen Raleigh, Mark Rossini, Doug Miller, sure. Ken Williams, Robert Wright Jr. from Chicago. I mean, you know, these guys really tried to warn like, hey, wait a minute. You know, it's an unusual high number of extremists in the country. We're trying to track, you know, uh, they have a lot of connections outside the country to Afghanistan to Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, you have these bureaucrats you know their superiors, who are basically you know creating these walls to make it harder for them to investigate and to act on the men, right? And then it's the same. That's just one agency, okay? That's the FBI. You know that. And by the way, that a similar thing happened with 1993, the World Trade Center bombing there. And there's a right. lot. Of, and same thing for like 9/11 conspiracies involving you know the FBI building the bomb and whatnot. That you know, that's not true, uh, in regards to. Foreign intelligence again, Israel involved with the monitoring of certain players that were involved with the creation of bomb that bombed the World Trade Center in '93. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, the FBI. You had there's one agency, and I, I think that comes from the higher ranks, you know, not just the Flatfoots themselves. But afterwards, here they are covering up the fact that hey, wait a minute, you know, shouldn't they be working for us? And Ken Williams basically just you know is puzzled by it. Uh, before I interviewed him, he basically said that he defied those orders and went and helped uh, a law firm, Creedler and Creedler, with the suing of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia right. for their role with 9-11. And, um, you know, you're you're aghast. It's like, why would they do this? Well, obviously, it's to cover up the fact that, hey, uh, you have Khalid al al bahazmi who are being protected by the CIA, the NSA, seemingly, and that at the same time, Covered up afterwards by the FBI regarding their connections with Al Qaeda, who has connections with Saudi Arabia. At the same time, not to pick on just the Arabs, you have the Hamburg cell out east, Florida, New York, New Jersey. And these are the major players, these are the pilots. These are Mohammed Atta, who hijacked Flight 11 allegedly, Marwan al Shahi, who hijacked Flight 175 allegedly, and Ziad Jara. Who hijacked ninety three allegedly. Now, I won't like go into straight detail Ed and you know, talk about the backgrounds. But even before they even came into the country, in Germany, some of these backgrounds are make you puzzle like, how could they be extremists coming from a very moderate family background? For example, Mohammed Atta, he grew up in a very uh, well to do household in Egypt. His father was a lawyer, his mother was a teacher, uh, basically was moderately religious, wasn't you know into the Wahhabi ideology yet, the fanatical ideology. He allegedly did join an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in Germany in the engineering uh, uh, engineering uh, school aspect of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is just an offshoot. Uh, but that's it
4: highly goes, disputed. It goes, it goes to show you these guys are not like when we think of these guys. We think of their we. The perception is they're they're not intelligent. They're just false mm. perception mm. that they're not intelligent. They live in this they're almost like a third world country. They're not you know all this stuff, and it's just simply not true. These guys are highly educated, very intelligent, smart. They know what they're doing. And, uh, it's, it's something that the nine eleven truth movement needs to really pay attention to and understand because, uh, it's not like they're, they're not, it's not like they were going to be duped, you know,
2: right.
4: by, by government officials, they're, 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 they're fanatical. They're fanatical, but very intelligent fanatics. And those are the most dangerous.
3: Some of them are br- like brilliant minds. For example, Ramsey Youssef, the bomber of mm-hmm. the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, he came out of the University of Wales. Um, I'm sorry, no. Um, he studied electrical engineering at a uh, school in Britain. I forgot. I, for, please forgive me. I, I, I said Wales. I could be wrong about that. Um, I forgot. Highly intelligent, um, but hardly religious. Same thing, fast forward, Same thing. Zia Jara, even worse. His family is well-to-do. Long history. Grew up in Beka Valley, Lebanon. Friends with Jews and Christians. Didn't grow up with any any religious uh, schooling whatsoever. Actually went to a Catholic school. A very prominent Catholic school. um, Not too far from his house. Was a partier. Uh, Loved girls and fast cars. Uh, Then moves to Germany in 1996 with his uh, cousin, Salim Al-Jara. And what is the first thing he does? He goes to the most radical mosque in all of Germany, Hamburg, big city in Hamburg, al Al-Quds. a very fervent mosque. Now you, you might be scratching your head like, okay, what a jump, right? Right. right what a jump, right? So you, you, you're, you're questioning yourself about this. Like, why the hell is he going there? Like, let's just say, you're the other, you walk in one day to this mosque. And you see that the imam, the imams there is Muhammad Fazizi. And he's an anti-Western, anti-imperialist, like real, like fiery brand jihadist, real jihadist. And basically, you're like walking around. Same for me. but no, you know what,
4: so- though, But here's the thing, though, with sure. that, you know, if he went to a Catholic, like a Catholic school, you know, lots of people go to Catholic schools, but they're not really religious, not, not even considered they Catholic. They're just they just went to a Catholic school. Sure. And don't really adhere to the ideologies or anything like that. Meanwhile, here he is getting going to Hamburg, going to this uh, this mosque, and being introduced to this very very um you know radical sort of uh, 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 you know ideology you know introduced to it mm-hmm. and'd be I could see where the he could be the type to. Maybe hearing something that really emotionally moves him for the first time in his life. Like Catholicism didn't do it. You know, he didn't really pay attention to anything else throughout his life. But then when he first goes to a mosque and hears him speak and, and it gets introduced, gets that that little poison pill, sure. so to speak, and then gets a taste of that, and then and then becomes uh, moved by it, so to speak. Right. I could see how that could that could jump could be appear to be a major jump.
3: Could that be? Let me uh, further speak on that. Could that be? And I want to get your thoughts. Could that be sure. political as well as religious at the same time?
4: Uh, yeah. Because I think the the that sort of um uh that bent on the Muslim religion intro introduces a lot of the politics. But I think it's going to be incorporated into that into that ideology.
3: Right, because it's because I'll just to re just to elucidate uh, more. Uh, in Lebanon at that time, uh, during in the mid nineties, uh, there was a civil war with I mean well, a war with Israel at the time. And so I could understand why he could be persuaded to become involved. I mean, we're playing devil's advocate here too. Sure, is, sure. Right. Yeah. So I'm not yeah, I'm not at all saying this is what right, happened. I'm right, 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 exactly. I'm right.
4: trying to understand because it was an interesting question you posed. Right. And uh, like why what what how can he make that jump and i was trying to figure it out like in my own mind how could he do that and i was like well you know when you think about it you know when you hear something that's provocative for the first time
3: sure
4: it's uh you know then all of a sudden you latch on to it and then you might hold on to it for a few years next thing you know you're like oh i know i learned something different and move on but uh that's why people get into cults for a while why people get into oh yeah into move into movements you know in general
3: good point um now okay I won't waste any more time on it, but fast forward to 1999, right? They they are, now, if we're to, let's take this with a grain of salt. This is coming from uh, the federal government, like 9-11 commission, all right? They're persuaded to go to Afghanistan. Now, uh, let me retract that for a minute, because this is important. They were supposed to go to Chechnya to enter the war against the Soviets there. And they're persuaded to go to Afghanistan. Now the story about the person who persuades them is under some contention here. I think we agree because we talked about this before. And it involves an individual by the name of Mohammed Aoud Slahi who basically was the main character in a film called The um, uh, The Moritarian. And basically what happened was the United Commission stated that, and this is coming from the CIA basically, was that Mohammed Aoud Slahi met with Members of the Hamburg cell persuaded them to go to Afghanistan, speak with Mohammed uh, Osama bin Laden and the military commander of Al Qaeda, Mohammed Atta. And in the way they meet with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who tells them about the planes operation. Um, but that story is dead. Why? Because Slahi was never charged with a crime, and that story was, was not true. He never met them. And that's for the public record. So now there's a big gap there. Who right. persuaded them to go to Afghanistan at all? Right. to engage in this? Now, we do know they, they went to Afghanistan because there's video. Um, there's only one video that shows Ma- Ziad and together. There's no sound to it. Now, I have that post on my my Odyssey if you know, people want to see it. But there's no sound to it. Now, that's true. That's them, too. But um, needless to say, all right, they go to Afghanistan. They're told about the planes operation. And they all agree. Now, there's some. All right. Now, this is something else because I always play, like I say, I play devil's advocate. Here's three guys, young men, and they automatically go to Afghanistan. They go through security security screening uh, for a week or two, and then not meet like low-level al Qaeda operatives. No, they meet Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al Swahiri, the Emir, the second in command. The military commander Mohammed Ataf and Khalid Sheikh Muhammad took out the freaking hierarchy of Al Qaeda here. So they, they went right to the jump. They met these guys. Right, right. You know, that's exactly. like the Lacosa Nostra, the mafia, right? You're just yeah, a sure, soldier. Absolutely. And you're, you're not going to meet Joe Banana right off the bat. Right. Sorry. You got to work your way up. <laughs> <laughs> no, these yeah. guys go right to the jump. You yeah, know?
4: you might have to whack a few people before you get there. You know,
3: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. This is what drove me. I'm like, wow, these yeah. guys met. The top people yeah okay now like they're
4: being made they're being made you know made right the <laughs> have to, do anything. Have to do
3: anything um yeah. I, I, yeah so okay so they swear bayat which is uh arabic for loyalty they swear loyalty to bin Laden, which is a prerequisite for joining al-qaeda and immediately they're told about the planes operation i'm like what? this is you know the biggest operation in history by the way right which is, which is basically. Uh, you know, where did this come from, this planes operation? In the short order, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, grain of salt right here. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's an uncle to Ramzi USA, um, was part of an operation called Pachinka plot in 1995, 96. And this involved the planting of bombs on 12 airliners and have them all explode over the Pacific from planes coming from Southeast Asia and the United States, had them all explode in one minute of each other, and the debris lands in the ocean. They don't know what happened right? They're just dead. And also there were sleeper cells inside the United States that would hijack 10 planes and have them all crash over into, you know, the intercontinental United States. And that was a hidden part of the Pajinka plot. That idea was given to uh, a plotter named Abdul-Hakim Murad, who's a pilot, by the way, trained inside the United States. He got his license here. Told Khalid Sheikh Mohammed about that idea. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed I think, kept that idea and told it to Bin Laden. Like I said, grain of salt. So, all right, these guys agreed to the planes operation. And they go back inside the United... They, they go back to Germany. They make preparations to enter the United States. At the same time, German intelligence is monitoring these people. They tell the CIA. The CIA comes. They're monitoring even Al-Qaeda facilitators who are grooming these people along. Because the German intelligence were monitoring the Al Quds Mosque for years, years and years. And basically, they said that um, they knew about two facilitators named Mohammed Haidar Zamar and Mahmoud Darq Gonzalez, who are Syrian Muslims who have connections with Al Qaeda and they're gun runners. These guys are serious guys. And they have legitimate, uh, Mahmoud is a businessman too. He has businesses in Germany. So they're grooming these young guys along, almost like, hey, yeah, well, you know. Train you in the right way and get you to meet the right people. And what happened later on is that you know these guys are are also confronted by the CIA, and they're basically uh, this, according to the CIA, they tried to turn them into informants. Now, allegedly, Marmoud Darkazali says no, but the, you know, uh, we don't know after that like I, I you know I don't know if he was. And basically, said no. Same thing with Zamar. And basically, the NSA is listening to Zamar's cell phone at the same time. So they know about certain aspects of what's going on. You know, these guys are basically with the Hamburg cell a lot of the year 1999, 2000. They come to the United States. Who's tracking these people inside the United States almost from day one? The Israelis. So you have two big rings. One is a huge, and it's the biggest foreign intelligence ring in U.S. history. This was the art student ring. Not the guys in the World Trade Center called July B, okay? No, that's the Rebecca Roth nonsense. You know, Dawson, Dawson, Ryan Dawson loves to point this out, and he's right. Um, the The art student ring is much bigger than that. It's like 250, 300 people, all throughout the Southwest, Northeast. Right. At the same time, there's another Israeli uh, ring, and they're using moving front companies, Mo- actual moving companies, not fronts, but they're fronts for Israeli intelligence. Urban moving systems, everybody knows. Classic international movements in Florida, New York, uh, New Jersey, uh, white glove movements, Moishi movements. Yeah, the one Jackson. in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, right. These guys. So they're basically, you know, and as that's an ingenious part, like to use moving companies because you can actually move throughout the United States. Right. moving around, trying to track. And uh, what what we know, how do we know this? You know, So that you don't just believe what I'm saying. There is a, a lawyer who is retired out of California. His name is Gerald Shea. And out of his own pocket, did a private investigation into these Israeli uh, rings. And he wrote a, a memorandum called the Shea Memorandum. Not a conspiracy. He used police arrest records of these people who... Were arrested because they expired their visas. Okay. Huge number of these Israelis. Huge. Same thing like the Saudis. They, they were detained later after 9 11 on what? Visa violations. Not going to reiterate why that's important. Huge ring, Ed. Israelis on one on the East Coast, Saudis on the West Coast. Ed, what does We Are Change in LA and what does this mean overall to the truth movement?
4: Well, it means that uh, they were under our noses. Number one, right. Yeah. Now,
3: why didn't they talk about this aspect?
4: Oh, because we were too busy with other bullshit conspiracy theories.
3: <laughs> what a shame. Yeah. What a shame.
4: Yeah, it was wait. Yeah, it was just it was we we this information was not known to this uh, to us at the time, and and when it was and if it was known to us, I mean, if it was revealed to us. They wouldn't be able to. Most of the people in the movement wouldn't be able to confront it, as we're seeing right now.
3: Do you think? Let me get your opinion on it. If if this information was available to you, uh, to the to the peak of We Are Change LA, would it have made a difference?
2: No. No.
3: Well, that's really. I could.
4: I is I say that because I couldn't even get them past the Pentagon. It was so bad I couldn't even present the information about the Pentagon. Just bringing it up was enough to to, to destroy everything.
3: That's uh, demoralizing. That's me. bad. Yeah, right. It's bad. Right.
4: Yeah, that's it's a, that's ridiculous. Right. That's what that is now. At- and yeah, and now let me we go back to something that you said. Interesting. It was like um, when they, when that cell was uh you know went to Saudi Arabia the Atta, et cetera. Right. And they met with Osama bin Laden and they got that access, you know, um,
2: mm-hmm.
4: you know, I got, I started thinking about it. I'm like, what, what, why, why would they get that kind of access so quickly? Were they, were they being assessed as to whether or not they would be the type to take their own lives as jihad would, And it would require that type of high level, uh, I guess, high level um, screening.
3: It's an interesting point you raise because it is a commitment. I mean, you know, you're dying for the to right. sake. And they're young. They're not old yes. people. These are very young mm-hmm.
4: men. Impressionable.
3: Right. And to make that leap is I can't even imagine. Like astonishing. right? And if we're to believe that narrative by the 9 Commission Report, which is rather vague, and if we're to believe they just did it it really doesn't tell us much yeah why, it, why, you, why, why?
4: yeah could you go back to the to the question you had about who who sent them to saudi arabia who told oh, them no, to, go to saudi they, arabia
3: that told them the afghanistan
4: you yeah, oh, yeah, afghanistan, afghanistan sorry right. afghanistan who, who who uh told them to go to afghanistan to meet with osama bin laden that person knew something it was like you don't could almost assume mm-hmm. and i'm just speculating here that person may have known something about them saying, Hey, these got to be good for a jihad. Go to go to Afghanistan, meet with these people. And then he phones them up and says, Hey, I'm sending you some folks. I think they could be groomed for blah, 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 you know, a jihad. And um and maybe that's maybe maybe if I were to if I was to speculate about all the information I had, and that's where my brain would go right away as far as starting uh, using a hypothesis to try <clears> and, figure out if that's actually uh, a realistic uh, hypothesis.
3: Right. Because that connection is broken. Right. So we, we're left right. to like our own desire. Like we won't, we don't know. Yeah.
4: Um, so I would look for somebody who has that type of, uh, I would look for somebody who, who, uh, who knew those guys who, I would look for someone who has whose job it is to find those people for that mission.
3: Okay, so there would be, all right, the, the closest thing, Ed, would be uh, the members of the Quds Mosque who knew them. Now, German uh, courts actually prosecuted an individual by the name of Munir al-Multasek, who, who knew Mohammed Attazy Al Mawan al friends with them, and and, and bin al Okay. Ramsey bin al actually acted as a, a facilitator. He couldn't get in the United States. The only one who couldn't get in the United States because his his application was rejected. Um but Muni al was found innocent of all charges by German courts. And later on, Saeed Bahaji, another individual with the Al-Quds mosque who knew the Hamburg cell, um, he basically said that I never really saw Ziyad Jara. And there's only one piece of evidence that links Ziyad Jara to members of Al-Quds. And it was a photograph uh, that was found by German intelligence um, showing that uh, Ziyad Jara had attended Saeed Bahaji's wedding but it was just one photograph. Now, German intelligence through Ger- Der Spiegel, uh, Nelson gets mad credit for this. He's the one who brought me uh, this article. And basically the article said that there was a, a, a German source who worked for the BFB, intelligence arm, uh, domestic intelligence for German, who basically said to Der Spiegel, he goes, there were, throughout our years of monitoring Al-Quds, there was no evidence to show that Ziad Jara ever uh was part of this hamburg cell except for the fbi saying so
4: interesting
3: now that's something else right that's very interesting else. yeah very but there's a lot of mystery with which i'm gonna to get to in a minute because right, for, those exactly. who, for those who throw away the, the hijackers i'm gonna you know blow your mind with you know information that shows you know there's even there could be even a bigger bigger conspiracy And it starts with Zia Jara. So he said, all right, these guys come to the United States. Atta, Jara, al Shahi, right? They come to the United States. Israel starts monitoring these people. They live nearby. Um, Incidentally enough, by the way, um, one of the dancing Israelis, you know, right, that's arrested on 9-11, he has an ID card. And his ID card is a license for Hollywood, Florida, which is 30 miles south of where Muhammad Atta and Marwan El Shea left. Okay. So there's one, yeah. there's one there. Right. right. So at the same time, all these the Israelis are monitoring the Hamburg cells out east, the Saudis out west, the FBI, no idea. State Department, no idea. Now you could say this is where the State Department has plausible deniability. Whether they you want to play that Bush knew or Cheney knew, what new, you won't know because they are not talking, and we can always speculate that they know or, or probably didn't know. But to their benefit, the less they know, the less you know, the more they can act you know inconspicuously and play dumb. So,
4: so it wasn't even a case of the watchers watching the watchers watching the watchers.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: exactly, exactly. You at That's least you right. have that, you know. Yeah, exactly right. Now, for those of the intimate knowledge. Into the real details. Well, that would come from signals intelligence. And That's the reason why I brought up the NSA listening to the phone calls. And nobody, Ed, nobody, not even the 9/11 Commission, not even the Joint Inquiry. Now, call 11 tried, but nobody asked the NSA anything. You would think that they would ask. Now, I've talking with uh, on on Twitter with former senior executive of the NSA, Thomas Drake. And he basically said to me once that the uh, the NSA let the CIA take the fall, the fall, so they didn't. Nobody got fired, so to speak. They laid down the sword regarding the commission inquiries. You know, right. they basically got you know directly. You know, Carl Levin tried and Tim Romer and Richard Benvenisti, but they didn't go far enough. But there wasn't enough pushback. Hey, wait a minute. You know, why didn't this information be shared? They should have asked the NSA, hey, wait a minute, what did you learn about those signals to tell us? Well, we can't talk about that. Well, somebody did, Ed. It was Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake, according to him, basically said that the NSA throughout the years 1992 to 1990... Now, we're talking about Bin Laden's satellite phone, so we got to start from 92. The Yemen hub, that starts in 96, ends in 2001. So, let's just say from 92 to 2001, that's 10 years of phone calls. According to Thomas Drake, I'm not making this up. According to Thomas Drake, he says that the NSA had collected so much metadata alone, just them alone, that they could have prevented 9/11 altogether. Just them alone, if it was shared with anybody. Wow! So there was this. There was Thomas Drake later, and I covered this in an article too, and so has um, uh, Ray Doliski and John Duffy and Kevin Fenton, and Paul Thompson, they have written about Thomas Drake showing uh, Maureen Beginsky, Signal's Intelligence Director the NSA, uh, all the metadata that was shown. And he says, you know, we accumulated this. And the first thing she says to Thomas Drake, Tom, I wish you hadn't shown me
4: I wish me you this. wouldn't show me this, yeah.
3: <laughs> Why? Yeah. They no longer have plausible deniability. Plausible
4: deniability, yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly Right. So now the thing is what was said. Now the NSA made an excuse that we didn't have the manpower to describe the data. Bullshit. Because they heard about the fucking Malaysian summit meeting on the phone. They heard about um, uh, them leaving the United States because they were uh, listening to Hasmi's cell phone. They were listening to the phone calls of Al Midar. I think he placed six of those. In the united inside the United States, all this and no
4: and, and this is a question I would be would it would be uh, the question I would have then is you know, i I'd be curious to know where the source of a lack of manpower comes from. In other words, is it in other words, if it's real right? There should be some paperwork, you know to back that up or showing sure. that there's like no funding for it or sure. showing there was requests, showing emails being going to request of. More manpower to transcribe this, have it be denied, or you know, it's got to be something showing that that was a problem. Otherwise, why the hell would you spend ten years doing monitoring, connecting a monitoring operation, hmm. and then not trans hmm. transcribing the data?
3: Right, it makes it's, no sense. No, it doesn't. It, it, you know, it's it really is something else because. If it was a problem before, like you said, and this is a great point, I'm glad you raised this. If it was a problem before, why didn't it raise it then? Right. okay it 10 it years, 10 years in to ten get years, right, 10 years, right, in 10 years. But no, it wasn't a problem before because it would have been brought up even years ago. It would have been yeah. brought up. Now, that's the, that's the problem. Now, for those who are saying, well, how do you know Thomas Drake really said this? Let me play the clip of where Thomas Drake actually said this. I us just listen. <laughs> okay.
5: We had failed the country. We had failed to keep Americans out of harm's way. However, that was not the case with much of the leadership. Leadership was really in denial. I would hear the following phrase, which I think one person in particular probably had regrets ever saying more publicly, that 9-11 was a gift to NSA.
3: <laughs> wow.
5: A gift. It was really an interesting bifurcation, a very secret organization knowing that we were part of a systemic failure called 9-11. I will also tell you 9-11 could have been prevented. One of the things that's not well publicly known is that part of my whistleblowing involved being called as material witness in the short months after 9-11 for two 9-11 congressional investigations, which I gave highly classified information, operational intelligence, Information the NSA had never shared, or information it did not know it had that was never shared, that if it had been shared and properly acted upon, probably would have stopped 9/11 alone, separate from any other intelligence agency or department.
3: They, so I mean, and that's just yeah. that's just the NSA. Ed. Mm-hmm. And then you have the D Defense Intelligence that's Able Danger, and they collected
4: so. So you got the failure of the NSA, failure of the FBI, failure of the CIA, failure of uh, Congress, failure of everybody, all the way down the line. While at the same time, they were all, they all knew this was all going on. So what do, do you think, do you think it was an actual legitimate failure? Or do you think it was a, uh, there was something else more nefarious?
3: And and that's how conspiracies live, right? Yeah. Now you can understand, like, Now I have like I can understand why it
4: is a legitimate question. Yes, it is based on based on what we know. How do you how do you fail to that degree?
3: I think it's too.
4: Is it too nebulous?
3: It can't. It can't be like. There's a great quote by John Judge, the late John Judge, who basically said. I don't like to be called a conspiracy theorist, because if you're calling me a conspiracy theorist, I'm going to call you a coincidence theorist. (laughs) So in other words, this is a long list of coincidences that just happen to be all at once. No. And, you know, if you ask my opinion... I think, how many
4: coincidences? How many coincidences do you have to have before it's a conspiracy?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, something of this magnitude, no less, right? <laughs> I mean, just exactly. Huge, Christ. Exactly. Um, and you know, in my, and this is coming just an opinion. Like I think very few people were in the know, like down to the last detail. And you know who I think knew intimate details? The very people that were deported. That would be the Israelis and the Saudis who were up front and close with these operatives in the country. You know, we could talk about the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, what they knew, what they didn't know. But these guys were running their own operations and they weren't sharing information with the CIA. That's right. Okay. They were all deported on visa violations. Why is this huge? I I spoke about this before. This is huge because the first crime these people committed was it a federal crime? An immigration crime. And what uh, happens when immigration crimes that you get deport- deported? Do you get investigated by unless the United you're coming States?
4: into unless you're coming to the south uh, the Mexican border.
3: Unless, uh, <laughs> then
4: you get a bus. Then you get a bus ticket to, to Washington D.C. and <laughs> Chicago. Well,
3: that's a different subject altogether. <laughs> okay, point well taken, Ed. Point well taken. <laughs> well,
4: that's how it's happened today. Back then, no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, but no, nevertheless, they, these guys go back to Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and can't be investigated. Right. Okay. And so cover, it, shuts, and the,
4: it shuts off the. Right. Shuts off any chance of being able to pull them in with subpoenas
3: right. and, and exactly.
4: conduct a real thorough investigation exactly. with, with actual real suspects because we let them out of the country. Exactly. We let them go.
3: And now and that brings up the bigger question, you know, like why are we helping them? That goes back to foreign policy and goes back to what we share with Israel and the United States and Saudi Arabia and those relationships that go back, you know, to the Woodrow and Wilson it, days and and
4: how quickly did it happen after 9-11?
3: Interestingly enough, uh, this is a very good question, by the way, because it happened in less than two to three months. So in other words, uh, everybody knows about the urban movie systems, you know, they got arrested, you know, they're celebrating the attacks North Tower. Um, They try to leave the city. Uh, There's an all points bulletin about the truck. And they go to East Turb Pike, and one cop, Scott uh, DiCarlo, and his partner, Sergeant Dennis Ravelli, they see the truck, but they they they, they the numbers match on his plate except for a letter. They they call back, and say, "Hey, listen, oh, okay, yeah, this is the guys." They stop the truck, pull them out. You know, the big statement: "We're not your problem. The Palestinians are a problem." You know, strange comment right. like that right. it makes no sense. Why they would say it? Okay, they get they get detained. They're arrested on immigration charges. Right, they get detained, but they're questioned by the FBI. Because on their possession is a map, and highlighted on the map is Doric Towers, where they're celebrating, World Trade Center, and um, uh, no, I, and that was it. It was a highlight. And through that, they found also passports out of the country to South America in like two days' time. And they also found like, I think, uh, $6,500 in a sock or something like that. You no know, strange place, to put it. Yeah. You know, think you put it in a bank where, you know, we're getting robbed. Right. Um, but there's nothing in the truck. Truck is empty, no furniture, whatnot, right? Not, that's not strange in itself because, you know, they could probably, you know, say they're finished with a job and whatnot. Nevertheless, they go, they're detained. 71 days. And the FBI writes a report. Now, that report is publicly available. It's redacted. But there's a part in it uh, where it, the question is, what is the reasoning for the detainee of these five uh, fibers? They call them the high five. And so there is a page and a half totally redacted. Now, a simple no and say, well, no, these guys are not big suspects. Wouldn't it take up much time?
4: Right, right.
3: (laughs) Okay. Wouldn't take up much space. Yeah,
4: I have the FOIA request of all the files on that whole situation. Oh, do you? With all the redaction, yeah.
3: and Yeah, and now there's also the East Rutherford Report, and that's partly redacted too. Never, nevertheless, you know, there's, there's some interest in these guys. They know more than what they're saying. Obviously. Yes. Obviously, Nevertheless, 71 days. Pressure from, the, from two unnamed New York senators. We don't know who they are. Tell Alan Dershowitz, who's acting as a mediator, of course, scumbag. And the pressure comes from, of all people, Dov Zakhar, who was a comptroller, United States, dual Israeli citizen, uh, a lot of shady uh, background with this guy. Yeah,
4: fresh Jewish. Uh, you got Jobs Atkins Jewish. Yeah, you got uh, Alan Dershowitz Jewish, Israeli Jewish. Exactly, Jewish. exactly. It's like yeah. it's like come it's, on, it's like yeah,
3: there's, an, there's, there's a connection here. You know, it's not anti-Semitic to say this part uh, right. because it's for the historical record, right? Mm-hmm. These guys are deported. Not only them, two others in Pennsylvania. And these are the guys nobody ever talks about. Now, besides Nelson and yourself and Sean and the new guys, um, Brian Dawson's another. Uh, no one ever talks about these guys: Roy Barak and Modi Bubul. And you're like, you know, what's the deal? Who are they? Well, they're Urban Moving Systems employees too, and they were detained on September 12, 2001, by Pennsylvania State Troopers in a town called York. And they were coming off an expressway. Oh, I'm sorry. I, as you can see, I'm ignorant regarding driving because I never drove a car in my life. Uh, they're coming off a, 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 um, a, a freeway that's linked to Shankville, Pennsylvania. I'm going to tell you why this is big in a minute. And that's speculation on my part. Anyway, they get pulled over. There's no furniture in the truck. They tell the cops they, 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 they were servicing a client in Ohio, I think. So they call. The, the urban movement system, the cops are calling. All right, we've got to make sure these guys are legit because about the previous day's stories. Hey, um, these guys work for you? And the manager of urban Move system is Dominic Suter. And he basically says, yes, yeah, they work for me. Um, did you did, did you know that they were servicing a client outside the state? He goes, well, due to the previous day's events, uh, we had no clientele outside the state on September 11th to 12th. And the cop says, well, how can you explain that? And he said, "Strange, I can't."
4: Which is interesting. because Dominic Suter—I mean, if he's running a front company, you think he would cover for his own guys?
3: <laughs> Correct. Good point. You know. Good point. No. But that's, maybe. That's, but maybe he really yeah. didn't know. Like playing devil's advocate, maybe he sure. didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. But n- nevertheless, they're detained by the FBI, uh, and they're asked questions. They find out that these guys had even a deeper connection to signals intelligence with Israel, more so than the five-dancing Israelis, which all the concentration goes to those guys. Now, why is this this important? Because they, too, get detained, and they get deported. Now, why is this important? Because what I'm about to say is speculation. It's something that myself, Nelson, is working on, too, over the years, uh, something we're trying to desperately, trying to gain as much information as we can, so not to use speculation as a form of evidence. But here's our speculative theory, Ed, is that we think these guys did go to Chicago, Ohio, I forgot the state, but on their way, they were passing Shanksville. And the big thing is, is that we think that they dumped some of the items that were recovered by the FBI there. Now, you may be saying, what items? Well, they recovered uh, um, an ID card from Ziad Jarrah. There was a business card belonging to Ziad Jarrah. Now, for you, the listener, you may be saying, why is that a big deal? Well, here's the lowdown. Ziad Jarrah has a cousin named Asam al-Jarrah who actually was a member of the Abu Nadal organization. Who is also an intelligence asset for Germany, Libya, and Israel. He also has two other cousins, Ali al Jar.
4: And Abu Nadal is like the uh, uh, like the oh, the 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 Messiah of terrorism.
3: Yeah, the original, like before Bin Laden, right? Who basically was born in uh, Israel, uh, and also is allegedly was a a subcontractor for Israeli intelligence at at one time, which a claim he doesn't deny, but he doesn't, you know, wouldn't say he was, but um, he doesn't deny it. But he was also a contractor for a number of intelligence agencies as well. Nevertheless, uh, he has two cousins, Ali al Jarrah and Joseph al-Jara, the brother of Ali al Jarrah, who were Israeli uh, operatives for 25 years. Ali al Jaro was working with the Mossad as as an operative uh, to assist them with intelligence regarding Hezbollah. And uh, one of the last operations was the assassination of Imad Mugniya, who was a senior military commander of Hezbollah. And because of that assassination, they found out that Ali al Jaro might be, because he had detailed knowledge of Imad, and the Mossad and the CIA basically drone-striped Imad Mugniya. And very few people know where he was in Ali al Jar. They, they just possible um, elimination. They said, all right, you know, well, they found, and Hezbollah basically arrested Ali al found out that he worked for the Israeli t- 25 years. His brother, Joseph al Jar, helped him for 10 years. Humongous. What we're trying to show is that here we have a family that has connections to not just the intelligence community abroad, but also with Israel. Now, here's our working theory. Me and Nelson like to think that, like I said, speculation here, just to repeat, we think that Jar was actually an Israeli mole working alongside the Hamburg cell and the plane's operation and gained intimate knowledge about the operation and basically was down to the last, even the day itself, Went to the airport because he was there. I mean, we have people that could put him there. He had a boarding pass. But we don't think he got on that plane. Now, you may say, wow, you're making a remarkable statement. here," And it is a remarkable statement. And there's very little evidence to show this. But hear me out. Um, If you listen to the phone calls of Flight 93, something that unfortunately, Ed, the truth movement, thinks are fake. Right. There are six phone calls, two from flight attendants, four from passengers that basically say, hey, we're being hijacked and it's three guys. Ed, what does the FBI and 9-11 commission say? How many hijackers are on Flight 93?
4: So they're saying there was, uh, there was like four. From yes, right.
3: That's right. Ziad Jarrah is the pilot and the muscle hijackers are Saeed Al-Ghamdi Akhman al-Nami and Akmed al haznaw Okay? right. Three. Two flight sets, four passengers. And three of those, of the six, say all three guys are dark-skinned males. Now, I propose, you listeners out there, Google Ziad Jara. He's as white as the driven snow, this guy. Now, also at the same time, Ziad Jara, before he meets the members of the Hamburg cell, anybody else, he goes to Germany, he lives alone. Allegedly, he meets these members of the Hamburg cell. He lives alone. He comes to the United States. You think he'd be, you know, with Mohamed Atman? No. He lives alone. And even worse, in two days prior to the events, when he meets the muscle hijackers, they come to the United States, he rents a room at the Daisy Motel in Jersey, one for him, and one for them. Now, Ed, does that make any sense?
4: Well, if he is truly a mole uh, conducting a, an operation and he's embedded himself in the cell, then he's going to try and distance himself to some degree to in, to increase it, to decrease the likelihood of him right. being found out about. Right. right. So that- being able to keep that distance to some degree will Will help the uh, yeah it will it will it'll help prevent suspicion.
3: That's correct, right? That's what I'm alluding to, too, right? Mm. You would want some separation because if you're actually using the phone, the contact maybe I handle yeah. it. because he does call somebody and he does make mm. calls to a uh, an individual in Germany. I didn't mention this before, but um, his name is Marcel K. That's all we know. He's an imam. He has connections with Hamas in the United States, but there's a lot of mystery behind this guy. And he even calls him, like, on very pressuring things. And he calls them, I think, three days or two days before 9-11 even happens. And basically, no one talks about this guy. Very few people. Very few. Anyway, if you want to call like somebody, an operative, you know, say, hey, listen, we're still going down, you know, stuff like that, you would want some separation, like you said before. Now, like I said, Please take this with a huge block of salt because this is all speculation. And he very well could be on the plane. Now, the only thing I don't disagree with him being not on the plane is that there is audio on the plane and it's his voice saying, please sit down. There's a bomb on board, so please sit. Now, the, the Flight 93 crashes in Schenke. It's the only plane where the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder survives it. And this is huge. And basically, it was played, the recording, the only time ever the recording is played for the victim's families. And it played during the Musawi trial, Sakharaz Musawi, the alleged 20th hijacker, at his trial in 2006. The families heard it in a separate room. They heard it. And what they heard was basically the guy being outside the door, whoever it was, killed. And there's two people in the cockpit. Now, the transcript is publicly available. And you can read the transcript. And at no point in the transcript is the name Ziad ever mentioned. Right. Saeed is mentioned. And there is a, a muscle hijacker, Saeed Al-Gamdi. Now, in the transcript at the lower end, just before they crash, somebody who's sitting next to him said, Saeed, up, down, up, down, meaning the plane, because at this point, the pastor is trying to get in, using the food. Right. Plane. Okay. None of these planes ever had the passengers fight. Now, I think at one time uh, we had a conversation once where I was reading the FBI uh, interviews of the uh, phone calls of the people that were made on these planes. And also, incidentally enough, on flight 93, it was the only plane where the hijackers told the passengers their intentions, that they were going to hijack the plane. Right. Now, you would think that that would be the last thing you would do, to cause right. not a ruckus to come back because in flight eleven, Arthur says we're going back to the airport. Okay, yeah, because in other words, we don't want you to fight back. Right. That wasn't the case with ninety three.
4: Well, didn't didn't one of the uh, flights or the phone calls we went through? Didn't they say to the passenger that uh, they flew planes in the World Trade Center?
3: Yes, that's all. Oh, I'm glad you then, this that, up. Yes, and that, and that was yes. also a you know. Right, right, right. Now, also, too, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm so because you just reminded me. The hijackers of Flight 93 are telling Flight 93 the passengers make phone calls to your loved ones because you're going to die. So it's almost like, hey, listen, you have no choice but to fight back. Right, right. Which is why would you say that in the first place? Meaning, you know, I I don't understand it's like. You could play it like a lot, but that's how I got with it. Like, mm-hmm. why would you invite resistance if your mission is to, you know, crash plane and kill people? Right. So yeah, there's a whole lot that doesn't make sense here. Um, but no, yeah, nevertheless, uh, that's the speculation: is that Ziad Jarrah was the Israeli mole that the CIA mm-hmm. always wanted. They never, because Kofor Black was head of the counterterrorism unit at the CIA in 1999. Tells George Tenet he's he can't believe that there's no informants in Al Qaeda, and he tried to build some, and that was the excuse right. he uses. And I'm using quotation marks here. The quote is the excuse he uses regarding Khalid Al Bidar to why they didn't tell the FBI because they tried to turn.
4: Right, because it's much harder to get some some uh, some recruit from Ohio who's uh, who looks about as about as American as you can possibly get <laughs> than it is to than it is to get somebody who's an Israeli embedded into the Middle East, uh, you know, those moles and the, into those organizations. Yeah.
3: Truth. Truth to all the matter. You know, and um yeah and and look that is that is just what we just talked about here. That is just some not everything there. That is just oh, some yeah. of the conspiracies that the truth movement and just just denies off the bat because they don't want to believe hijackers live.
4: Could you you imagine being the hijackers if you were to come back and and see what happened what the truth movement is doing and how they completely just what the fuck you mean we hijacked Eric Brad we planned this thing for 10 years we hijacked Eric Brad we killed all all these people we killed ourselves in the process
3: and you think it was a fucking missile (laughs) and holograms? What the fuck? I did it for that? You know, it's funny because...
4: I feel feel so degraded right now. I I, I, I feel so inadequate.
3: I'm so glad you brought this up because it leads into a segue. I'm going to share with you. And you know, I think you've seen this before. And for those who, you know, because this is not visual format, audio format, the (laughs) best Onion article... (laughs) The best well, which is, episode.
4: which passes as real news today by the way
3: yeah by the way pass, that's right but just listen to this
2: <laughs> a new book called the truth about september 11th claims to present evidence that the destruction of the world trade center was not the work of terrorists <laughs> but was in fact perpetrated by the u.s government with us, the much-maligned books author
5: William Gerard. Most of the mainstream media, they're just too afraid to even have me on. So thank you. <laughs> also joining us is
2: Omar Al Farouk of Al Qaeda. He's an outspoken critic of what he calls
0: our <laughs> Al conspiracy theories. yes Michael, uh, I assure you that is all this book is is complete nonsense.
5: Mr. Gerard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How did you arrive at the conclusions in your book? Where are the facts Well, through
5: scientific examination of Ground Zero. For example, the melted core. I mean, well, that was definitely evidence <laughs> that there were thermite bombs that were used in bringing down those I buildings. I can
0: assure you, we did not use thermite bombs. I did the research myself. It would not have worked. We flew an enormous airplane into a building okay I think it is obvious what caused the building to crumble it why is, are you being
5: so close-minded to this <laughs> sir how would you like the courage. if
0: you spent you know two months in a, a mountain caves uh, sleeping on rocks planning something Really special. It only to have someone take the credit away from you. Say, oh no, you don't, have
2: a don't deserve credit Why in the world would the U.S. government want to stage this attack on their own soil?
5: Greed, of course. And to increase the oil revenues, the weapons industry, and security industry, and these are all things that Bush and uh, puppet master
0: Cheney—they've got their stakes in. Bush's administration, there are a den of jackals. We we certainly have common ground there. But but what does not follow is why would it they doesn't kill? Doesn't follow. Why would they kill? 3,000 of their own infantry. Well, of course, because what? think about why it. It was, was all part of their
5: plan to build a case for the war to in Iraq. Was
0: so smart think to about to plan it. all of this. Why is his approval rating you know, in El Haman? And why is Osama bin Laden safe in it, somewhere. Yes, the Iraq War has done <laughs> yeah, yeah. serious damage to the Bush uh, administration. Here, here, look, look. I have uh, names, phone numbers, everyone involved in this. got okay? Names and phone numbers. I i have here the the voucher for the lessons, for the flight lessons. This is for obviously our, our and Come on! Did President Bush give you these himself? <laughs> I yeah, work this for is ridiculous. Me and Bush, we go out, we hang. He what? goes, "Hey, <laughs> we, you're <laughs> <we're running laughs> just is rubbish." No, is <laughs> like talking to a. This girl. is the kind of thing our government does. Let like Mr. about Valcatera speak. I have a suggestion. For you. Why don't you go to the Washington Monument take the family, let's say October 12, uh, 2009, uh, round 304, uh, take a guided <laughs> tour to the top and uh, just wait there. I, I think you will see that Al Qaeda uh, is very good at, at organizing things. Gentlemen- see-
3: <laughs> my oh, my God. That, that's, perp- that's That's a, a perfect description. No, I
4: never. I We did not plan that, by the way, everybody watching this. We did not plan that whatsoever. That was a great segue because, uh, I mean, that was perfect. That yeah, was perfect. So
3: you've never seen that before? Never. Yeah. Oh no. I've Never and, seen that. Yeah. But the only reason yeah. why is because what you said before about, um, you know, Al Qaeda not believing in ISIS. I said, well, that leads to the great. Uh, uh, yeah,
4: that was. That was perfect.
3: I think that's. A, but uh, at the same time, Ed, you know, it, it's criminal almost. Oh, like it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. You, Take away all the credit from the real hijackers. Yeah. <laughs> feeling all, <laughs> feeling all like inadequate and right, like, right, right. You know, All that planning for nothing. It's like they still don't believe we did it.
3: <laughs> but now, all right. Now this leads to a bigger, wider question. All right, CIA, NSA, FBI, Israeli, Saudi intelligence. If they really held back information and allowed these attacks to happen, for what for? All right, what for? Now it leads into the bigger conspiracy of all. And that is foreign policy. Our foreign yep. policy with the Middle East. Foreign policy guidelines of the 80s and 90s that come to fruition, not exactly, not precisely, but generally uh, 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 came to fruition. And that well, is... You had the
4: end of the Cold War.
3: Right. So, we had to replace it. Yeah. Right. And that is religious fundamentalism, which is not a description of Islam as a whole. So who benefits, right? Well, obviously, the military-industrial complex from this uh, perpetual state of war. Israel, yeah. because of the preconceived enemies that of the Arab world. And Saudi Arabia, who has a religious war with uh, countries like Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iran. And basically what this did for, uh, in terms of hegemony in the region, well, it destroyed it forever. And we, what happened? Well, after 9-11, who did we invade? Did we invade Saudi Arabia? No. no. Iraq. Iraq. Afghanistan.
4: Afghanistan.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And then later, under the Obama administration, hope and change, by the way, Syria and Libya.
4: Syria? Yeah.
3: Right. The only country we didn't go to war with was Iran, which is a much more formidable country. Nevertheless, all this, even after all this information that we were talking about today in this episode, goes completely under the rug, helps out the perpetrators of holding back the information for allowing these attacks to happen and then benefit afterwards, and at the same time, perpetrate the fringe aspects which cover and blanket most everything we said today.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's the tragedy of it. That's why the Nile of truth movement is not a movement. It is, should be called the 9-11 Truth not going anywhere.
3: <laughs> not going anywhere. So, Ed, uh, you know, I'll wrap it up here, but I really want to get your thoughts now. What is your opinion about the future of the 9-11 Truth movie? Do, do you see any revitalization, or will it be just, will it die out, or will it just keep perpetrating Bailey alive with these fringe conspiracies? It's
4: going to be, um, it will die out. Nothing will ever happen from it in my humble opinion, not the way it's going now. if you don't we don't start paying attention to the stuff like we're talking about today, nothing mm. will ever happen
3: okay, let me let me follow up with that if if you could change something within the truth movement, what would you what would you change? What would you like to see?
4: If, if I could change something within the truth movement, i I would love to have seen this type of information we're talking about today be incorporated into the dialogue without it being given a separate and distinct sort of um designation in other words it's oh that's that over there oh this is this over here and it's all the same it's all should be incorporated not not separated like oh that's oh that's that angle this is a single and And we don't pay attention to that over there. We we pay attention only to this because this is easier and you know. So if I could change that and actually have people who are honest and and willing and wanting to get to the truth of the matter, no matter where it takes you, Hmm. that's what I'd rather see. I want to see a movement that isn't afraid to tackle complex and difficult issues, and uh, especially when it comes to geopolitics.
3: I, I share that commonality with you, and I would like to see a concentrated effort on the geopolitical aspects of 9/11 because I think that aspect of 9/11 is so horribly maligned by the worst uh, fringe theories. And I, whether you want to say that was on purpose or not, you know, it's a matter of debate and argument. But one thing is for certain: is that the anomalies that we shared with you today uh, has basically gone unnoticed or acknowledged, mm-hmm. unacknowledged by the one movement you think would basically try to uncover the truth and that's the 9-11 truth movement mm-hmm. and originally the truth movement wasn't impaired by fringe conspiracies they actually, they didn't even call themselves a movement, they were the Jersey widows right. and because of them they forced the government to create the 9-11 Commission, and the Joint group yeah. But ever since then, it just devolved right into fringe aspects, ridiculous, ra- irrational theories. Now, like I said, whether that was manufactured or not, I could probably somewhat agree. But I think ignorance, too, plays a huge part. And also, you bring up something that I didn't take into effect uh, and then you persuaded me later on was that Intellectual laziness—that people don't want to do the work and And, study—and I would, you know, think that that wasn't the case. But unfortunately, I think you're right. Um, I I would
4: like to—I would like to see at least one of the main players. Well, not—not any one of them, but. One of the main players, like Richard Gage, for example. I would love to see him actually tackle the geopolitics head on and actually make it part of his criteria, make it part of his uh his uh, presentation. Learn it.
3: Yeah, and I, he I... has
4: he, he has a big voice. He has a big you know he, he's he's known. So it's like you know, but he he doesn't he, he just caters to his known audience, and that's the problem.
3: Right, and this is something that you you. Constantly brought up to him, and you've actually talked with him. And I know that mm-hmm. he once tried to get me on his show, and he said no. And um, basically, uh, that he has on like these guests, or you know, that repeat the you know these ridiculous theories and whatnot. And no, I you know, I don't know Richard gauge personally, and I won't attack his personality. He Could be a nice guy, but my only critique of him is that he continues to pander to these. You know these outrageous theories, and um yep. you know it hurts the truth movement. And why? You know, I, you know, I, I addressed this before. You know, like why do you critique gay and Barbara Honecker and all these people? And it's not because I'm you know pretentious asshole, right? I'm I'm doing it because the stuff that they're sharing is actually hurting the truth movement, right. not helping them. Exactly. And um, I like to try and right the ship, so to speak. Even though I'm a small mm-hmm. channel, but I like to try and give the effort there. But um Ed, this is a great discussion tonight. Yeah, man. Yeah, listen, you know, I, I I love having these discussions where it's more of like, you know, just not a constructed discussion and conversation. I think we should have them more often. But um thank yeah. you very much for coming on tonight, Ed. I really appreciate you coming on.
4: Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Anytime. Okay.
3: And um, I'll see you guys after the anniversary. Thank you very much for tuning in. Adam Fitzgerald at The Darkened Hour.